0: Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar author of fantasy inspired by slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good the true and the beautiful you're listening to fantasy for our time in this podcast i discuss classic and new fantasy media have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers and explore how stories can help us all live a better more fulfilling life what is time have you ever thought about what time is I mean, we're all in it, we're always dealing with it, but what is it, actually? It's something that oftentimes we don't think. We think about how to overcome it, we think about how to manage it, but what is it, actually? There's a lot of different uh, explanations of what it might be. Here's um, St. Augustine from the 4th century, who says, If someone asks me what is time, I know, but if someone asks me to explain it, I don't know. And if we go into literature, we'll find plenty of excellent quotes uh, to talk about time. I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. That's a big one. Frodo said a good one. I wish it need not have happened in my time, he said. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Tennessee Williams in The Glass Menagerie says, Time is the longest distance between two places, the longest distance between two places. Charles Darwin says, a man who dares to waste one hour of time has not discovered the value of life. Albert Einstein goes so far as to say time is an illusion. We'll get back to that. Heraclitus going all the way back to the other side of history, time is a game played beautifully by children. What can we take from all this? The understanding of time is completely it's very difficult to to qualify, to quantify. But if we think about it, most of the time when we think about time, we think of it as something negative, as something that leads us closer to an undesired end, to our own death. Or sometimes we look at time as something that needs to be kicked to the curb, something that needs to be controlled before it controls us completely. And nowadays, you see that kind of thing with all the software that tries to manage time for you, Pomodoro apps, uh, things that that help you give you the illusion that you actually have control over this thing that's completely running your life. Or on the other hand, sometimes we look at entertainment as something that kills time or being in a state of focus so intense that we call it flow state. Uh, the time seems to disappear for a short time, an experience that is quite pleasurable, actually. But then again, time, according to... to um, Albert Einstein, might not even exist. So what's the deal? What can we take from this? And why should we even care about what time is? Well, it's something that has bothered people from for a very long time, from pretty much the beginning of history. If you look at uh, early philosophy, let's say around the time of St. Augustine, he looks at the problem of time and the way he and subsequent Western Philosophers looked at time actually really determines the way that we interact with time nowadays as 21st century Westerners See Augustine says that God is so completely outside of time that Eternity in which God exists and the temporal world in which we exist are completely separate from each other Eternity in the strict sense then is the sole attribute of God according to Augustine Um, and another thing that he says that time or temporal succession Now, note that he defines time as a sequence of events, is solely an attribute of creatures. He believed that it's only something that belongs to the created world. So time and eternity, then, stand as two very different modes of being, so sharply defined, so sharply different, that you cannot possibly conceive of one inside the other. So there's no actual intrinsic genetic relationship between them. Now, if you think about it, this dichotomy between eternity as, as the realm of the distant God who cannot whom we cannot possibly touch, uh, and this created world which is bound by time, the separation, the gulf between them, actually leads very, very clearly to a much more modern way of viewing time, where we look at time as a causal thing, as a sequence of events that start from a single point way in the, back, in the past at some undefined moment many, many, many years ago, and going in a straight time, straight line, to some undefined point um, probably at a future point where it will end. And God in this conception, if one even believes in God, is a sort of guy who pokes his finger into the timeline occasionally for no real reason that we can understand or appreciate. If you think about it, this is sometimes the way we think about time and sometimes the way we think, if we're believers, about the uh, interaction of God within the created world of time, specifically. Except it's not a particularly, it's a very modern way of looking at things But it's not a particularly useful one, if you think about it, because it tends to exacerbate the condition that we all find ourselves in, the condition of being constantly lost for lack of enough time to do things that we have to. Even though it seems like we all have more than enough time to do the things that we need to, the inevitable flow of time from some backwards point to some future point where it will end, or at least where we will end, is so indelible. It's so much like a flowing river that pushes us forward that... Our experience of time is more often than not something that we want to avoid or try to get out of in some way, whether it's through um, working really hard, or whether it's through alcohol abuse, or whether, it's, or whether it's through working really, or whether it's through some experience of pleasure that allows us to um, be outside of time for some some short period and to fool ourselves into thinking that we're not actually bound by it. Interestingly, this sort of vision of time the one for which we need to come up with apps to manage it has become so unpopular that some of us, some people nowadays are starting to look back at older models of how people used to interact with time. And this is certainly visible in a lot of fantasy fiction. And this is what I find particularly interesting. I mentioned um, Robin Hobb's series, The Fitz Fitz and The Fool, and the rest of the assassin series that follows the main character named Fitz and his friend and foil the fool. Throughout this long series of many, many books, we get frequent glimpses of a reality in this created world, in this fantasy world, that time seems to be not linear at all, but actually cyclical. So that Fitz is a kind of archetype of the uh, Catalyst, with a capital C, and the Fool is an archetype of a a repeated historical pattern or historical personage um, called the White Prophet. Uh, And the two together, the white prophet and his catalyst, uh, come at a particularly intense or cataclysmic time in history within this created world that Robin Hobb has has made, which is a kind of slightly changed version of late medieval Europe. And through embodying the reality of their previous incarnations, although this fact of whether or not they are actually reincarnated or new people just embodying architects isn't, isn't made clear, but by embodying those archetypes or by becoming those people that they're supposed to be, they can enact incredible change in this created world. Not surprisingly, this sort of vision of the world is, is fierce, is severely deterministic and actually very fatalistic. Because if everything's going to go in a circle, there's really nothing that you can do. So even though the main character fits is a catalyst and he, he catalyzes tremendous change, that change is foretold, it is inevitable because he is born and because he is there. So the question of free will naturally arises, is Fitz free to do what he wants? Or is his very act of uh, acting out his free will also foreordained, also a part of a plan? And can he possibly get out of this constant um, ring, this constant wheel of time, this constant repetition of... Frankly, horrifying history that never seems to get any better. It goes in waves, but it inevitably repeats the, the same terrible, terrible cataclysms. It's a very depressing, like I said, view of history. It's also one that is um, representative of what the ancient Greeks and the Romans believed right before um, the uh, the beginning of the New Age, the beginning of, of AD. They saw the world as cyclical. They saw time as entirely cyclical, and they were stuck within this this system of fatalism, and so you had this uh, the development of different different philosophical systems, like Stoicism, which is basically you look at that wheel of time and that inevitable turning, and you just suck it up, and you find um, calmness and consolation in accepting the inevitability of it. Or you have Epicureanism, which in its um, most incorrect form is just basically hedonism, or rather in, in the modern interpretation of, of it is basically hedonism. In actual fact, um, Epicureanism was remarkably ascetic, but that's maybe a conversation for a different time. In any case, cyclical time seems to be becoming more and more interesting together with this new, not, not more interesting, more and more popular. It it seems to be cut together with the resurgence and the kind of rebirth of Stoicism nowadays, um, embodied by such people as Tim Ferriss and people who, who like to follow him, or even the Art of Manliness blog people. They They're really big on Stoicism, um, it, this Stoicism, uh, with this rebirth of, rebirth of Stoicism, there seems to be a kind of rebirth or reanimation of this idea that well, maybe we're just going maybe just maybe just time is a is a series of repeating cycles, and we can do maybe some small things to change our immediate surroundings, but we can't do much to change the inevitability of what will happen in on the large scale. Something that a lot of people are succumbing to. Um, because of, for political reasons, because they don't like Trump, or because they don't like the other side, or it doesn't matter. I mean, there seems to be more and more of a deterministic fatalism kind of inherent in people's re- people's interaction with time and with their involvement in it. Um, thinking about this, and thinking about how some people seem to be really stuck in it, um, I remembered one of the better movies that I had seen in the last few years uh, with my wife. I saw it in Russian, which was odd. Um, seeing... American movies in Russian is always odd, because the the voices they choose to dub never fit the actual um, actors. Um, so I being, you know, an American, I, I know how the actors are supposed to sound, and when I hear the Russian voices coming out through their mouths, it just sounds really bizarre. And of course, the, the lips moving at different times from the from the words just bugs me. That's neither here nor there. But the point being that we saw the movie Arrival, uh, one of these great, one, one of the better science science fiction movies, of the last uh, decade, for sure, for sure, if not more. But that movie is very, very much about time. Now, I hadn't watched it since it came out in theaters, and I decided, why not read the original that it's based on? It's a novella that actually, I think, won the, the uh, well, a few prizes. I can't remember which one exactly. But it was definitely a popular and award-winning novella written in the 90s uh, by Ted Chiang, which is now available in a collection of his short fiction called Uh, Stories of Your Life. Now, this story that Arrival is based on is called uh, Story of Your Life. And it's an account by a linguist, um, the the linguist who was played by Amy Adams in the movie. And it begins with uh, her talking to her daughter in the second person. So the story, in effect, it plays with time. And as we find out very quickly, if you've seen the movie, you know this, that she's talking to her daughter in the future but using the past tense so she seems to be adrift in time this character from the very beginning of the story and as we read more and more about the specifics of the aliens that come down to earth and what it is that they do and who they are we start to understand how her sense of time stops being causal it stops being linear and she begins to see time not as causal causology but as teleology the the story is interesting. Now it's it's quite hard sci-fi and um, it gets really down into the nitty gritty of of uh, sort of linguistic talk and how the aliens who nobody can understand why they even come, they slowly begin to develop a language that is that is largely visual. So it's not the language that the aliens speak but it's the language in which the aliens write which is a different language than their spoken, spoken language. And their written language, like their experience of time, is not causal and it's not linear. It includes the full experience of time, both beginning, middle, and end, in a single unit. So in the movie, this is done really effectively with the logograms that are circular, and they have little flourishes here and there um, that indicate a more more specific um, meaning uh, to to a sentence or to a concept. Um, In the book, we don't actually see what the logograms look like, and it sounds like they're a little bit more kind of frilly, the author describes them as a bunch of praying mantises attached to each other by, the, by their praying arms and it looks kind of squiggly and funny. But in any case, as the as the main character begins to interact with the language, in her own experience of time begins to change because the language itself has a different experience, has a different relationship to time than the normal human causality model, which is a fascinating thing by the way, because I don't know if you know this or not, but if you speak, several languages, it's quite clear, demonstrably clear, that you have slightly different characters or slightly different personalities when you speak in those different languages. And, of course, it's anecdotal if I talk only about myself, but I will tell you for sure that when I speak in Russian, I am a different person than when when I speak in English. Not so much so that it becomes, you know, kind of a, a split personality type thing, but certainly some things that I would easily say in Russian, I would never say in translation in English, it would just sound weird. Um, my English persona wouldn't allow for it to be to be said out loud. Uh, it is it is a demonstrable fact that this actually happens. When you learn a new language, you develop your personality in that language slightly differently than you would in your native language of English, for example. So what happens to her is she begins to experience time differently. And if you haven't seen the, the movie or, or read the book, now's where the spoilers come, so I'm warning you in advance. But basically, she comes to realize that, this, that, she's, that she is seeing visions of her future daughter. She can't understand initially what these visions are and why in the movie, in the book, it's less, less clear. But she realizes that she's going to have a daughter. Uh, she's going to have a daughter with uh, a, a colleague of hers who was working with her to try to understand the language of the aliens. And uh, in the future, she's going to lose the daughter. In the book, she loses the daughter to a random accident while the daughter is climbing and there's some really interesting things that begin to happen in the story in the book uh, that diverge quite uh, significantly from the movie and i thought i would include some quotes from the from the story and talk about what i what it means for our own actual experience in time us people here now uh or in eternity depending on how you look at it so it does get a little bit technical uh, in the story, and basically, it talks about how when humans think about physical laws, they prefer to work with them in causal formulation. I could understand that, says the main character. The physical attributes that humans found intuitive, like kinetic energy or acceleration, are all properties of an object at a given moment in time. And these were conducive to a chronological or causal interpretation of events, one mo- moment growing out of another. Causes, effects, creating a chain reaction that grows from past to future. In contrast, the physical attributes that the heptapods, the aliens, found intuitive, like action, or those other things defined by integrals, were meaningful only over a period of time. And these were conducive to a teleological interpretation of events. By viewing events over a period of time, one recognized that there was a requirement that had to be satisfied, a goal of minimizing or maximizing, and one had to know the initial and final states to meet that goal. One needed knowledge of the effects before the causes could be initiated. I was going to understand that too. Now the question, of course, here is if, if she begins to see the world like they do, then the future, the past and the present start to get all mixed up and they start to get sort of not interchangeable, but um, happening at the same moment in time, so to speak. So she can, physically, or she can physically experience her future while in the present. And this leads to the question, what about free will? And the existence of free will meant that we couldn't know the future. This is how causal time works. And we knew free will existed because we had direct experience of it. Volition is an intrinsic part of consciousness. Or was it? What if the experience of knowing the future changed a person? What if it evoked a sense of urgency, a sense of obligation to act precisely as she knew she would? This is a great question. It's one of these eternal philosophical questions that can be looked at from a scientific point of view here and has been even longer looked at from a philosophical or theological point of view, where you where one questions if there is uh, such a thing as either fate or an all-knowing God, and human beings exist at the in the same space or within the created order of this God, then how can free will exist if God, who has created this temporal world, knows how everything will end up? Where, is, where does human free will be, uh, begin? Where does it end? Where does God's will come in? Or is it that God just simply steps aside and lets people do what they want? This is a question that has been debated endlessly for a very, very long time. No satisfactory answer, um, at least not one that is easy to explain, has really ever been reached. Um, you can talk about synergy, you can talk about, about different ways of approaching it, but you're not going to be able to come up with a very, with a, with a satisfactory answer that everybody's going to go, oh, okay, I understand. Now, it's much more interesting when you're talking about this problem through the medium of story. And in Story of Your Life by Te Chiang, the question is right there, front and center, because she sees the end of her daughter's life at 25 from a seemingly random accident. And she has a choice. At a certain point in the story or sort of she seems to have a choice does she marry her co-worker does she have a baby with him who is then going to grow up and be this this girl this self-willed uh, impulsive wonderful creature that fills her life with meaning who will then she knows die at a certain point she also sees her own death 50 at age 50 which is another interesting point and she describes this actually as a state as soon as she enters into the Consciousness of the heptapods through learning their language so well free will ceases to Exist it ceases to make sense as we thought about it in human terms So she she calls herself kind of caught between the, the worldview of the heptapod uh, and the worldview of the humans and what there's an interesting scene where she is shopping with her future husband and She recognizes as they're going by the kitchen uh, section in one of the stores that there is a bowl there, a glass bowl, that in 15 years from now, her daughter will drop, it will break, and she will cut her hand on this bowl. And she, the main character, has a compulsion, not so much as if somebody's controlling her, but a sense of extreme rightness, she describes it, to pick up this bowl and buy it. And for her, at that point, she decides that this means that free will, is no longer valid, it's no longer necessary, and she's okay with it, she kind of accepts it. This is the classic Greek way of looking at the cyclical nature of time in some sense, which is beautifully encapsulated by the, vi- the by the film version of the logographs, logo which are circular, and it's a kind of a dark ending to, to the book, where she accepts that this is going to be her life, she accepts that there are going to be beautiful parts to it, she accepts she's gonna die, and, That's it. It's not okay. It's not not okay. She kind of doesn't really have a point of view towards it. Interestingly, all the scenes where she sees or or remembers the future of her interactions with her daughter are largely devoid of emotion. It's really interesting. You would think that, if you had watched the movie, you would know that the main character actually is is filled with, with a lot of potential for emotion that doesn't come out in the, in the printed, on the printed page, in the printed story. So the story actually falls kind of flat at the end. And I was really surprised by it because the movie, I thought, was one of the best movies that I had seen in a very long time. And I'll explain why. First of all, the movie being a movie, um, it has a lot more urgency to it. So this, the setting includes a kind of ticking time bomb setup. Uh, There's a lot of mystery to the heptapods, the aliens, you don't really know why they're there. The mystery is also present in the short story, but there's never any menace to it. So even though in the movie it ends up that the heptapods are actually uh, benevolent and they want the good of humanity because it ends up becoming good for them too in the future, in the future that they can see as having happened in some sense already. But um, the, the sense of urgency makes her experience of the future daughter much more immediate much more necessary for her and amy adams does an incredibly beautiful job of acting it out and her experiences with her daughter which haven't happened yet are so heart-wrenchingly beautiful because you know from the first few uh 10-15 minutes of the movie that she's gonna die of an incurable illness and you find out slowly in beautiful fashion the the movie was written gorgeously that uh, that she learns about her daughter's death not immediately not in one fell swoop but through steps and she learns about the future slowly through her absorbing the language of the um, in step-by-step fashion not all at once and of being absorbed absorbed into it like it seems to be in the book but really the greatest moment and the thing that makes the the movie i think far better than the book is her choice to marry ian who is uh, has a different name in the short story her her colleague, who cannot see the future, who's not in this, um, stuck in between the two worldviews, she knows that her daughter's going to die. But she knows that those experiences with her daughter, and also she knows she's going to be estranged from her husband. And she finds out it's because she tells her husband that she knows the future of of their daughter's death, and he can't handle it, and he leaves her. She knows this is going to happen. She knows that daughter is going to die she chooses to have her daughter in her life because of the incredible love that she's able to give her knowing specifically that she's going to die now this comes from a conversation this decision that she makes comes from a conversation that she has before she has this revelation about time uh this is a conversation between her and and ian and she asks ian if you knew how you would end would you do anything differently and you expect him to say, yes I would you know change this this that, and the other," and he says, "I think I would love everyone a little bit more and I was just flabbergasted by that answer because actually philosophically and even theologically it's a it's a wonderful answer um it's a wonderful resolution to the question of free will in a setting where um where a God who created you is omniscient and omnipotent um it's also a way out of the deterministic circle um, of a worldview that is tied entirely uh, to fate. Because you can see your end, you know what's going to happen, but your free will is not in what you do, it's in how you love. And that, the movie just stands and it, it just, it grows up to a, to a new level on that one conversation that the two characters had which is not in the book and it raises the whole movie to a whole new level because you realize that what you're talking here you're talking about here is something far beyond causation or teleology you're talking about eschatology you're talking about the ultimate point of what it what it means to be alive and the ultimate point of what it means to be alive is to love and to love well and it it just made the book it made the movie far far better than the book and I was very surprised because I I thought that the book would, would have more depth to it. Um, and it turns out the movie did, which is great. And um, I'm really excited that uh, that uh, Dennis, uh, Denis Villeneuve, who directed the movie, is now going to be doing Dune, um, even though you can't possibly do Dune in only a two-hour movie. Um, it's been tried, and many have failed. <laughs> but if anybody's going to try it, um, I'm glad that it's him, because his visual style and the, the cinematographers and the writers he tends to work with all really seem to know how to tell a good story, um, even if Thus, the sequel to Blade Runner really wasn't wasn't that good, but that's a different conversation. Um, what's interesting, and what what I wanted to suggest about the movies, uh, what the movie has to say about one's experience about time, it's actually something that um, fits very well with the medieval mindset. Now, explain what I mean. Um, there's another book, a wonderful book that I recommend all of you read. It's called *Loris* by an, a Russian novelist named Evgenia Vodolasky. um is a philologist, he's a, he's, a, he's a student and a professor of Russian medieval um, literature. He's himself a medievalist, uh, he, he, he thinks like a medieval person, and in some ways he's, a, he's an apologist for the medieval mindset, because nowadays when we tend to think of medieval, we tend to think of dark ages, the kind of d- depictions of the middle ages we see on, on TV and in the movies, oftentimes, folk, oftentimes focuses only on the extreme negatives, uh, only on the lack of the good things that we have nowadays, as as first world um, people who live in in you know a progressive society. Well, for example, I mean it, our sort of typical understanding of of the Middle Ages is the Dark Ages, as exemplified um, allegorically by Game of Thrones, where. You know George Martin, basically, who is a, himself a student of history. A lot of the things, terrible things that happen in Game of Thrones, are based on actual events in history. But what he does, of course, is take all of the worst possible events he can imagine, and lump them together into a chronology that happens very quickly, one after the other, while these events that happened in history tend to happen with a much larger amounts of time between them. Um, so my point here being is that actually the Middle Ages were a lot—it's a lot more complex. Um, Christian uh, Cameron, who writes under uh, the semi pseudonym of Miles Miles Cameron, does medievalism really well in his in his uh, uh, in his uh, series, um, uh, the uh, Trader Sun series, which I love very much, uh, because he shows the brutality of it along with the pageantry and the, and the beauty of it, um, which oftentimes we miss in 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 these of tel- television shows and movies, which tend to show it as drab and as colorless and as brutal and ugly, but the Laskin shows us a medieval world, a medieval mindset that is very different from what we assume the Dark Ages to be, in particular when one's understanding and one's experience of time, and this is something that's really, I find fascinating. Now, those of you who have read the book will know what I'm talking about, but it's set in the 15th century, right around 1492, which was supposed to be the 7,000th year after the creation of the world and supposed to be the end of the world. So there's this sort of post-apocalyptic, fe- post-apocalyptic feeling in Russia during this time. There's constant breakouts of the Black Plague and everybody's really freaked out and nobody really knows what's gonna happen. And this main character, um, Arseny, he is Arseny. He has three names during, during the course of the book. One of the names is Arseny. He has these experiences where he finds himself uprooted from time. For example, he as a child is sitting in front of a fireplace and he sees a the fa- he sees a face in the fire, and the face is himself as an old man. And he looks at this face of himself as an old man, and he has absolutely no problem interacting with this future version of himself. It doesn't freak him out. It does, it's not a moment of, of tension, it's a moment of contemplation, it's a moment of beautiful uh kind of in kind of interaction of the past, past and present in a way that is goes beyond our normal causal uh, experience of history. And this happens all the time. One of the characters is walking through uh, through a forest in the far north of Russia in the 15th century and stumbles across a uh, discarded plastic bottle because there's this bubble of sort of time rifts that happens. Time, the different time periods start to inter, intertwine with each other, and the experience of the main character then becomes important for the experiences of characters in the 19th, 18th, 20th centuries. And these fates of different people, through very strange um, events that can't possibly be explained through a sort of normal reasoning, start to depend on each other within time, but also outside of time. And Vidaliskin explains this in, in an excellent article that he wrote from First Things, magazines, from First Things Magazine called uh, The New Middle Ages. It talks about how medieval man experienced time not as a straight line, not as a series of, of, of causes and effects. Medieval man didn't experience time as we do not as a straight line not as a progression from a less developed time to a more developed time which is something we tend to tend to rely on a little bit too much i think nor do they see time as a circle with no way out of it not as a wheel that, that cannot be broken no they saw it as circular but not uh, the, not as a circle that comes back in on itself but rather a cycle of repeating patterns that moves forward at the same time—a combination of the of the forward, of the straight line moving forward and the circle moving in place—a helix or a spiral. So this was expressed in very interesting ways. He talks about how, uh, how the experience of every day was rooted in the church's calendar of saints and feasts. The church's calendar of saints and feasts repeats every year. So every day of the church year, for the most part, is the same year and year out. And if you're constantly repeating that same year over and over again, it's almost as if you're repeating the same day, except it's a year ahead. So there's weird echoes that you experience as a medieval person uh, of the same event happening more than once and yet seemingly in the same, um, in the same temporal space. For for this reason, they could, medieval people, found absolutely nothing wrong with such hagiographical flourishes as including details of the life of one Saint Cyril who lived in one century and conflating details of his life with another Saint Cyril who lived several centuries later because they have the same name. And since they have the same name, in some sense, they are a repetition, but in a new place and with a new context of the same uh, phenomenon. So it was totally normal, and actually very in a very interesting way, for them to mix up time, for them to exist simultaneously in the past, the present, and the future, sort of like the Heptapod's experience of, of teleological time. But for medieval man, this was an experience not of teleology, but of eschatology, because all times tend to repeat themselves while moving forwards toward, towards eternity. And this actually, especially in, in, uh, in the Eastern medieval tradition, was a way of resolving Augustine's and Boethius' problem of the absolutely distant God who lives in eternity and the absolutely temporal uh, man who lives within time. So what happens is essentially a cross. So there is a moment of intersection between the eternal and the temporal and that cross happened at a specific moment in time at the incarnation and all the time cycles around it while moving towards a specified point where time and eternity will meet at the end of time, rather at the fulfillment of time, because uh, at least in the Eastern tradition, time uh, is sort of not, it's not ended as it is some, as it is extended into eternity in, in this sort of endless eighth day. Um, this is something that comes across very clearly in, in a very interesting story fashion in uh, in Vodalaskin's beautiful novel, Loris. And it's hinted at in the movie Arrival. That's what I found so fascinating. While the story, uh, your uh, the story of your life by Te Cheng, which is the basis for the movie, has a much more fatalistic and much more limited view of human interaction within time. So while the main character has a vivid experience of being within nonlinear time, within circular time, for her, this is not a moment of this is not an experience that frees her. It is an experience that ties her down. A kind of pleasant inevitability. She can she has the capacity of enjoying her life, but it's it's a it's an enjoyment of acceptance, it's not an enjoyment of hope for an endless future or hope for for a future beyond the future, which is of course something that is very much present in the medieval mindset that is so beautifully expressed in the novel Loris by Evgeny Vodalaskin. Um, if so these two stories i highly recommend that you read them both uh, preferably together um i think they they provide a very interesting counterpoint to each other and they i think they really do force the reader to consider what what might a more proper relationship with time for us the readers what might it actually be is it like in the fits and the fool like in robin hobbs world an inevitability that we fight against just because in the fighting we assert our individuality, even though we know that ultimately we are doomed, is it a kind of pleasant acceptance of inevitability like in Te Chiang's Your Story is Your Life? Or is it a kind of being uprooted, um, kind of being rooted out of time, but within a larger context of uh, time-bound eternity or into the intersection of time and eternity? Which you can still actually encounter. Um, I said that medieval men was, you know, medieval men and women were the ones who experienced this. But you can still experience this in in traditional Christian um, cultures. Uh, certainly in the old world, but even here. Uh, for example, I mean, I, I use I see this all the time. I live next to a monastery, and if I wanted to, I could go to church every single day. If I wanted to, my entire experience of time would be liturgical time. Um, and if I actually did that for the for the, my first year in seminary, uh, and you end up getting unmoored a little bit from from regular time. You start losing track of what what part of the year it is because you're so stuck in first the cycle of the week, then the cycle of the month, then the cycle of the year, then the cycle of of Easter versus uh, versus the preparation for Easter. It's a very interesting and very fascinating experience, one that I highly recommend, even if you're not particularly religious, just to give you an idea of what it was like to experience time for people who lived before you and for people who had a lot of, a much more healthy relationship with time than we seem to do, because the best we manage to do I think these days is to ma- is to manage time rather than uh, to experience time as something that is that can then lead beyond it to something that uh, something that is greater larger more fulfilling that can perhaps lead us to the not simple acceptance um, of the of the main character in the story, but the desire to love more uh, that the main character in the movie Arrival uh, very clearly shows. So highly recommend all of these things that I, that I mentioned today. Um, you might be surprised I don't have a single really negative thing to say about <laughs> any of the <laughs> uh, books or, or movies that I mentioned, um, like I do often in, in other movies, in other uh, videos. But don't worry, that is coming. Um, Recently, in one of my my emails to my readers group, I recommended a book called The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie um, as as an example of a fascinating and wonderfully written book that that plays with all kinds of interesting tropes and interesting writing styles. Um, I'm going to talk about it in a a future um, video. I can no longer recommend it um, wholeheartedly. It's a fantastically written book, but it's got some really serious issues that I'd like to raise and I'd like to rant about um, at some... Uh, not so distant distant point in the future, um, so that's what's coming coming up. Thank you all for for stopping by. Um, if any of you have uh, any thoughts about um, books that that deal with time, or that deal with being stuck in time, or outside of time, not so much time travel. Time travel is a little bit of a different thing. But uh, if you can can think of any any books that help deepen one's experience in the real world of time, I'd love to hear about it. You know, uh, send me a message, send me an email, put it in the in the, in the um, comment section of this video on Facebook. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series. Inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.